Blog Talk Radio. This is Maya Bialik, and you are lucky enough to be listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, I'm Laura Bonarico. So nice to have you here with us at Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Gordon Thompson speaking. And I want to tell you that I have appeared on Brandon's Buzz, and I had a great time. And I think you will too, so please log on and have a listen. There, anybody listening to that to tell me that you didn't want to sing right along? I tell you what, it's one of the great theme songs in the history of television. Uh, uh, it's great stuff. Welcome to Brandon's Buzz. It is Wednesday night, February 18th, 2009, and I have a terrific guest uh, on the line with me. And I have a few program notes for you. Tomorrow night, I've got legendary soul singer Peggy Scott Adams on the Buzz. She was a star in the 60s. She kind of laid low for several years in the 70s and 80s and made a huge comeback in the 90s with a Grammy-nominated comeback smash called Bill. And she's a gospel singer now, and she's going to talk about her new projects and talk about her amazing career, and I'm so looking forward to that. Next week, I've got uh, Emmy-winning actress from Young and the Restless, Beth Maitland, on uh, Tuesday afternoon. Um, That'll be at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday afternoon. And I'm trying to get Nia Peoples on for next week also, so stay tuned for that. By the way, Peggy Scott Adams tomorrow night is at the same time as, as tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific, uh, tomorrow night here at www.blogtalkradio.com slash Buzz. You can go there to the site. You can listen to old shows. You can download old shows. You can also download old shows as podcasts from the iTunes Music Store. Go to the iTunes Store, type in Brandon's Buzz in the search box. My podcast will pop up. You can, you can subscribe to the show or you can download individual podcasts. It's all very exciting. So uh, there, I'm all over the Internet. You can go to my blog, brandonsbuzz.com, and listen to old shows. You can go to the show's website and listen to old shows. You can go to iTunes and listen to old shows. So there's no excuse not to connect with me here because I am all over the place. Uh, so it's very exciting. Blogtalkradio.com slash brandonsbuzz, and you can get the full scoop on who's coming up and who's already been on. Uh, it's great stuff. And I have a great guest tonight in, in, ev- in every way. She's a show business legend in an industry whose performers have a shelf life of roughly 40 minutes. She's still going stronger than ever after 40 years. She's been to the top of the heap as an actress with a much-beloved starring role on Days of Our Lives, as a songwriter with her classic television themes for different strokes and the one you just heard, The Facts of Life, which still get hum along with to this very day, as a recording artist with an iconic number one smash love song called Friends and Lovers, and as an author with four best-selling books on diabetes. She's currently preparing an exciting new musical review show entitled TV Tunes Tonight, and she's come by the buzz this evening to tell us all about it, as well as her dynamic award-winning career. What a genuine thrill it is to welcome to my show this evening the glorious, the beautiful Gloria Loring. 
Well, thank you. Oh my goodness, I'm I'm so impressed. I wonder who this is you're talking about. <laughs> We're talking about you, ma'am. How are you? Uh, we always we love the big build up, don't we? We just love it. Uh, well, I'm happy. I'm happy to be with you. It's fun. It's this such a fun. thrill and such an honor to speak to you. I've been a fan of yours for so long. Oh, well, thank you very much. Well, As, you're you're in Texas and I'm out here in Lake Arrowhead, California, and and I just I just love the the way things work now with the internet and boy, isn't it so funny? It, it, really what a, it really shows what it really shows. It really shows what a small world it is. You know, you, you never know who's listening, and they can be listening from anywhere on the planet with that connection. Oh, really? Well, of course. Yeah, I guess they could. Yeah, it's 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 for, and like I said in, in the intro, you can you can download the shows forever after. So even if you're not listening live, you can always download the show and listen to it later. Huh, so it's that's fun. It's really an innovative thing that they've come up with here, and and I'm having the time of my life getting this kind of off the ground and oh. talking to folks like you. Oh my goodness! And how did what brought you to do this? I'm curious. I'm interviewing you. You notice <laughs> what 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 started you on this? Well, you were on my friend Joanne's show uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And uh, I uh, I've been working with her for I don't know a little less than a year now. I've been kind of writing intros for her and doing guest research and you know co-hosting with her sometimes. And and uh, she had a guest on one night that she didn't really know much about. But she didn't want to turn away a guest because she was a new show, so I yes. just called in accidentally because I knew who she was, and we ended up having a conversation. And Joanne and I kind of ended up talking, you know, beyond that, and uh, we got to be pretty good friends. And so I just started helping her out. And and uh, I, what would what would happen was I would end up having more questions for the guests than I would have time to ask myself because Joanne's show is kind of is kind of geared toward the fans to call in and ask questions and stuff. Uh, and yeah. so, uh, I don't know, just one night I started playing around on the Blog Talk site and saw a button that said, uh, become a host now, and I filled out the application. It's ridiculous how easy it is to, to become a host for the show. Okay. And uh, here we go. We're, we're off and running. Now, you're my eighth guest, so we're, it's, uh, it's pretty well, exciting nice. here. So. I'm, yeah. I'm pleased to be here. So, <laughs> so tell me, what, you, what, what are your questions? What do you want to know? Oh, I want to know everything. Give us, oh, give us the. Oh, you're not going to get everything. I'm so sorry. We're not going to buzz that much. <laughs> I may have to draw the line somewhere, Brandon. Okay, okay. Well, give us the give us the 60 second rundown on Gloria Loring. Where were you born? Where did you go to school? Oh, give us, Lord. Let's get all the boring stuff. I was stuff born in New York City. My family's all from Minnesota, North Dakota. Uh, when we were when I was 11, we spent all our summers though. Even though we were in New York, we spent our summers in Minnesota, in northern Minnesota, up at Lake Ottertail. So I kind of had my New York sense of self, and I had my Minnesota sense of self. And then was uh, when I was 12, we moved to Minneapolis for three years, and I went to junior high school there. And then we moved to Miami, of all things. I mean, I had three very different cultural settings. And then in Miami, I, I went to high school down there to Miami Beach High School. I was a cheerleader. I was in the choir. I was in madrigals. I was a soloist, you know, all, all of that stuff. I was singing already. And then by the time I graduated high school, just a short few months later, I, I was actually already singing. If you, if you call professionally getting paid something for it, it was, you know, 10 or $15, but that I was already singing, and by the time I was 18, I, I had my arrangements I was getting written, and I started on the road by myself. My parents had divorced, and I was kind of, you know, left 
to my own devices because they moved away from Florida and I had an, an engagement in Florida. And so I, in Miami, and I stayed behind with some friends and lived with some friends for a number of months and and started my career and started singing. And I sang for quite a while before uh, before I joined Days of Our Lives. I was on over 400 television shows um, as a singer before I joined Days. And then, then I joined Days, and that was a whole new section <laughs> of exposure and Absolutely. learning. Oh, there was so much learning to do about it because Days was my first acting job. So that was it. Was very exciting. It was great. Did Did you always know that you could sing? Did Did you always know that you kind of had the talent and the the uh, I don't know maybe the personality, the the desire. I always had the desire. My mother and and it was just a part of me. My mother was a singer for a short period of time before she got married. She got married very young, I think at about 21, and gave up her career, as many women did back then, you know, to to be a mom. Um, My dad was a musician. He was a trumpet player, played with Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey, played with, oh gosh, so many people in the early years. Um, And all of his mother's family were, well, some of them were child prodigy musicians, but the... um, his mother and all of her siblings were musicians. And uh, so there's a lot of music on both sides of my family. And, of course, now that has descended down to Robin, my son, of course, Robin, yeah, Sick, who is doing so well and we're so proud of. Um, so, so music was always there for me. It was just from the time I was the littlest girl, my mom said when I was three or four, I'd get up in front of the television and try to mimic people I would see singing on TV and, by the time I was probably seven, I was in church choir, and then there was the school choirs, and you know. And if anybody would sit still long enough, I'd sing for them. <laughs> <laughs> and so, do you remember? Do you remember when you first? Do you remember the first time you got a real good reaction from to your voice? Do you remember? Oh no, I probably got a good reaction all along because okay. I was probably always a little better than people expected, whether I was three or thirteen or whatever. You know, um, I, I had a natural ear for it, and that's a gift that is given. I have a little niece, my sister's daughter, Emma, also has a pretty natural ear and a very sweet voice and has been singing. She was, she was two and a half. She'd sing in tune. So, I mean, I think it's something that you're born with, and then from there, depending on how hard you work and how much you want it, you develop it. Absolutely. And yeah. did did you just kind of fall into the acting thing, or were you kind of interested in, in pursuing that as well? When I first started doing television, I had an agent who said, well, you know, we got to get, get you studying acting that's really good for you in, in every way, and we'll get you some parts and this and that and the other. And So I studied acting, actually, for 10 years before I got a job on Days of Our Lives. Do you see what an overnight success I was? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's no such thing as overnight success. That's that's a myth. Not much. Well, you see, because you do all the work. It's like the iceberg. Yeah. You know, two yep. thir- two thirds of the work is below the surface. So, <laughs> so I, I I you know I'm interested in this in people who who excel at more than one thing like that, and especially in a tough business like yours. Do you find that that one of your talents helps the other along? Like, does, does yes, being a great I, actor help you be a better singer, and does being a great singer help you be a better actor? Does, does one feed yes, the other? Yes, 
Yes, they do. They're, they're different. Um, you use a different medium. Um, in one, you use only well your voice, but but you use your presence and your feeling about the material you're communicating with both. Um, and you know, uh, my dad was somebody who was very much into learning new things all the time when he got Parkinson's disease later in life and he couldn't play trumpet and he didn't play trumpet anymore. He took up guitar. Then when he couldn't get his fingers to work right, he took up harmonica. He was always making accommodation and learning something new. And I think he was a, a great example for, for all of us. There are three sisters. Um, Absolutely. And, I, and both of my sisters are like that. We're, we're interested in a lot of things. We're always interested in learning something new taking it to the next level, um, I don't ever want to stop learning. I, I hope I don't, because it's what keeps your, the brain juices going and, sure, absolutely. and, and your, your enjoyment of life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, they always say even doing things as simple as, as crossword puzzles kind of keeps you sharp, keeps you, you know, focused and, and, and always learning, some, learning something new, learning a new word, learning something new. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I, I agree with that. I think that's a good thing to do. So how did you break into television? What was your big break? My big break came from an agent that I had. I was out on the road. I was about 20 years old. And I was um, my agent arranged for me on the way back from London. I went to do the London Playboy Club. This was many years ago. And I was to come back and audition for the Merv Griffin show. Now, Merv Griffin, back in those days, had a show out of New York where he was always introducing new talent. Mm -hmm. And I went, I got off the plane from London, and the next day I had my audition at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon or something. And I, I, you know, my clock was all off, my body clock. And I woke up just starving because, of course, it was almost nighttime in or late afternoon in London, and I went to the stage deli, and I had this big, huge pastrami sandwich. <laughs> I was so hungry. I was like, ar, ar, ar. and I wolfed this thing down, and an hour later, I go to sing at my audition, and, of course, my tummy's all full of pastrami. Uh -huh. Oh, my Lord. And I got nervous, and I was tired, and I just didn't feel right. And I didn't do that well. I, you know, I, I could tell that I was a little wimpy and my voice wasn't quite up to it. Well, the agent, Freddie, Freddie Williamson, called Merv after because they said, well, thank you. You know, she's, she's very lovely, but we weren't that impressed. <laughs> and Freddie, bless his heart, wherever he is, called, I don't think he's still on the planet, but called Merv Griffin, and said, Merv, listen to me. We've known each other for 25 years. I've never steered you wrong. You've got to put this girl on your show. Trust me. Wow. She will deliver. And so I, on May the 3rd, made my debut, my television debut on the Merv Griffin show. I sang two songs. I just walked on, sang a song, came back at the end of the show, sang another song. And the next day, now it, it, it went, we taped a week in advance, so it was May the 10th, and the very next day, there were reviews and columns, you know, there's a new songbird in town, and this and that and the other, 
Now, a week later, I was already in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was doing an engagement at the Thunderbird Hotel and Dinner Club or whatever with, you know, the, the five, four, five-piece band, etc., doing my act, and I start to get phone calls. I get a phone call from Freddie. He said, listen, you're going to be swamped today. They're trying to find you. You are a sensation, this and that and the other. So, and Murray Schwartz, who was Merv's agent at William Morris, flew down to see me at, at Jacksonville, Florida, and talked to me, and I decided, you know, he said, Merv really wants you to go, and we're going to, I already talked to Merv, we're going to, you're going to do 26 Merv Griffin shows in the next year. I mean, you know, what, you get this offer, what do you do? I do what, do what, what those famous stories in television. I left the agent I was with, who was a small-time agent, even though he knew Merv, he was a smaller agent in Florida, but he was the one that got me the gig, but I left him, and I went with Murray Schwartz at William Morris Agency. You know, it's one of those great abandonment yeah. betrayal stories in show business. But it made wow. sense. I mean, it was Merv's agent who yeah. wanted to sign me and, you know, all of that stuff. So it's, all right, whatever. <laughs> and then I started doing that. I went to New York. And actually, I moved to New York not long after because I was going to be doing a Merv Griffin show every two weeks. And oh, wow. with that, yeah, with that, and they set me up with a place to get some some clothes because I had to have clothes. I didn't have hardly any money. I, you know, I was working for several hundred dollars a week, and all of a sudden, of course, my price quadrupled and all of that. And you know, it was very, very heady, exciting time, and it was all good. It was it was fun. It was a very, very fun experience. Wow. And so when you were on Marv Griffin's show, did, did you sing original material or did you sing the hits of the day? What, what, what kinds of things did you sing? I sang, oh, I sang my version of I Think I'm Going Out of My Head, okay. um, which was quite dramatic. And um, I have, I have a, um, a videotape of that somewhere here. It's, it's very interesting. And then, um, what did it, there was a second song. I don't remember what the second song was right now. But um, Merv was so impressed that he took, he was watching me after he introduced me when I came out and I had this long flaxen blonde hair and I was dressed all in, I think I was dressed in kind of a wispy, chiffony kind of gown, long gown. You know, I was trying to be very grown up and elegant. And... Merv stepped back and bumped and almost fell over because he bumped into the platform. He was backing up watching me, you know, I'm sure, you know, this this pretty young girl and with the long flaxen hair and all of yeah. that. And he, uh -huh. he was rather surprised because I don't think he had seen me during rehearsal. But so it was it was all very, very exciting, of course, you know. Wow. Yeah. No. You know, Merv is responsible for giving us Whitney Houston and Jerry Seinfeld, and God knows how many other people were on that show for the first time. I mean, who I was... know Merv. They they had a real eye for talented people, and and some of the people, I've I've wondered where. I remember Eliza Kashi was on the show a lot, and she was an Israeli singer, and she was great, and one of those kind of charo, very. And ebullient and fun and outgoing and outrageous and 
I don't know what whatever happened to her, you know, but she was uh, there was there were a number of people back then. Mm-hmm. It was great mm-hmm. fun. And were you able to stay connected with Merv uh, later in life, or did you lose touch? Um, well, there was, I mean, to be very honest, there was a falling out because Murray or somebody else, even though he was, I don't, I don't even remember how this happened, but about two years or a year into the process, toward the end of my contract with Merv, and that contract was over, um, and I had done my 26 shows in the year every two weeks, and somebody booked me on The Tonight Show, which was, of course, a big deal. The Tonight Show was nighttime, and it was Johnny Carson, and mm-hmm. and Merv found out about it and was mm-hmm. absolutely livid. He felt that it was a betrayal, and, you know, everybody's got their territory. It became a bit of a, pardon the expression, pissing contest. And I, were... I didn't know. Nobody told me that Merv would be <laughs> mad at me. What did yeah, they I were... know? They were pretty you know, bitter rivals back in the day, I, I understand. Well, and, you know, it wasn't my fault. I, I didn't know. You know, you figure, figure the powers that be. And um, so I, I never did the Merv Griffin show after that first year. But I went mm-hmm. on. I did Carol Burnett. I did Ed Sullivan. I did Dean Martin. I did three Carol Burnett shows in a year. Um, everybody had a variety show. Don Knotts had a variety <laughs> show. Everybody had a variety show. And I did lots of them. So, um, yeah, it was, as I said, it, you know, and I did the Steve Allen, I did the Tonight Show, I did all these different shows, and of course, it was a, a very, very heady time. It was, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was getting calls all the time, and then I was working major rooms in um, uh, Chicago and the Drake Hotel and all the... The posh supper clubs. Back then, it was supper clubs. People would go out and see a show, and there aren't that many of them left anymore. But um, it was a it was a great training. And before that, before Merv, I'd been on the road for almost two years by myself with my music in hand. I had to go in and learn how to conduct my own musical rehearsals with the band, explain my music to them. And we're talking about a little 18, 19-year-old, you know, traveling all over by herself. It was it was quite an education. And, and then go out on stage every night. And uh, so it was, it was exciting and thrilling and scary at times, you know. But, um, but I, I have no regrets about it because it really was an extraordinary experience. I bet. You know, when you see some of these young girls today, like Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan and, and, you know, some of these young celebrities who are kind of thrust into the spotlight, much the way you were, but in a completely different age, uh, yeah. are you are you just horrified for what they have to go through, the, the gauntlet they have to pass through these days? Well, it's, you know, if you're not careful, all that really heady stuff comes to you, and and it can really turn you around. Um you know, there's there's so so much money now, and and so it's it's too much for a young person, unless unless they've got some people to really help them stay grounded. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, they can just as we've seen with the you know the drugs and the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the 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 mental instability that can come with it, and it's perfectly understandable. And if anything, rather than vilifying these people, we have to feel compassion for them because 
we don't know that we wouldn't have done just the same, if not worse. You know, um, absolutely. Uh, so, but you know, I, you, I you came up you came up in a totally different time where not every single person on the planet was watching you. I mean, you know, in in the yeah. day of in this day of zero privacy because of the internet and because of camera phones and because of all this yes, and TMZ all this technology and jazz all that, the paparazzi absolutely and, oh my god i never i never i mean unless we specifically went of course but i was never like a britney or paris hilton or i mean you know now you're a celebrity not because of what you do but just because of who you are <laughs> sometimes i mean uh-huh. really you know, back uh-huh. then, you were, it was Frank Sinatra was the guy that the camera guys followed around, but they didn't get too close because <laughs> he had his bodyguards. <laughs> um, so it, it really was a very different time. There wasn't, there's just an incredible amount of pressure now. And it's, I think it'd be so easy to get your head turned and, and get, get in the wrong place. And, you know, it's so easy to go just party yourself into a stupor and, yeah. I mean, it's easy anyway, for heaven's sakes. But when you have everybody telling you you're the best, you're the best, you're the best, and you start to buy people to surround, pay people to surround yourself with who keep telling you you're the best, you're the best, you never get anybody helping correct you the the way siblings do. And, and I think the lucky ones who make it young but have very strong family connection, mother, father, siblings, um, they have a much better chance of, of maintaining some balance along the way. Absolutely. I, I, I would imagine that's the case with your son, Robin. You mentioned Robin. Uh, he was a little bit older when he, when he broke big, but, but uh, yeah, I would imagine he had a pretty strong foundation to work from. Yeah, yeah, he does. And actually, that's, that's a, a very good thing. Uh, when he was about 15, there was a possibility he was going to be offered, or 16, it was an acting role on a on a series and I was dead set against it. I because because I knew Robin, he was my son, and I I know enough about him to feel that it would not be a healthy thing, well for any kid, to to be have grown men, adults calling you, you know, sir. Because when you're on a, a television set or, and you're the star, you know, you're, you're, you're 12, but you're called uh-huh. Mr. Thick or something, you know, because mm-hmm. it's out of respect because you're the star and mm-hmm. your performance is helping to pay their salaries or your participation. So I just, I just felt that was not a good thing. I knew that Robin had a lot of talent, and I, I thought, you know, if he goes on a show and he's on it for a year and a half or two and then it closes down, He's a has-been when he's 18. And I thought, that is not right for my son. Wow. Fortunately, something came came up. I don't even remember. It, it, that role didn't work out. And he started to work. And by the time he was 17, he was, um, perf- uh, he was already writing and singing. Well, by the time he was 15, he wrote a song that Ban- Brandy recorded mm-hmm. that she released on a triple platinum album when he was 17. Wow. And so he was getting his first songwriting royalty checks, which were quite large, when he was about 18 years old. Um, but he started, he was singing and working and learning all along that time. Um, we got him some piano lessons at one point, and then he quit the piano lessons, and I was distressed over it. 
because I thought, oh, he should learn to play piano. The next thing I know, four or five months later, he sat down at the piano and played for me. And I said, wait a minute, how did you do that? <laughs> he said, I just taught myself. So, you know, he has that he has that gigantic musical ability. And he's worked very, very hard for the last 15 years. Um, he parties hardy, too. And I think one of the great things about my son is, yes, he's close to his mom and dad and his brother and and he's got a really, really good heart and a very, very strong intelligence. One of the best things that ever happened to him is Paula Patton, mm-hmm. who is now Mrs. Robin Thicke and has been mm-hmm. for about three years. But they met when he was 14 and she was 15, or 15, 16, something like that. And then they broke up for a year or so, whatever. But, but they've been together for 14 years now. I mean, they, and she has been a grounding force because he loved her all along, has loved her all along this way so much that she was the person to say, Robin, you're getting out of line. (laughs) You know, when you you love somebody and you're sharing your life with them, you know, and and you listen. Uh, Whereas if somebody's just dating a bunch of guys or girls who, just want to impress you, they're not going to tell you the things you need to hear. Yeah, you Paula, Paula also has an enormous talent and an enormous intelligence and a really great heart. So they're a, they're a very powerful couple together. They're, they're quite a presence together. And what a great singer, what a great songwriter. I mean, he's he's really got the full package. I mean, he's, he's yeah. just a really terrific artist. A really terrific he artist. He is, and he's He's had the courage really early in his career to do things that I didn't know that I could do until later, such as write songs. I never really learned to play an instrument. I mean, he just went for it 150% from the very beginning, and um, and it shows. I mean, yeah. in addition to his own performances, and I, if, if those of you who are listening, if you haven't seen Robin perform live, you are in for a treat. He is every bit the entertainer that that I have always been, and in his own unique way. Um, and on top of that, here he writes and produces and sings all the background vocals, mm-hmm. and and he's just got an enormous range of both skill and talent. I'm very proud of him. Absolutely, as well you should be. You know, with with you and Alan having both achieved truly incredible success in the business. Uh, how were you with him as he was coming up? Were you, did you kind of stand back and let him make his own mistakes, or were you, were you pretty strongly influential? How, how, how no. were you with him as he was coming up? No, by the time Robin was 17, he um, went on home study, and he, we, uh, Alan and I, um, his dad, were divorced, and he was going back and forth between the two houses. And he finally came to me and he said, look, he said, um, you and Dad are sharing the child support, and I, I don't want to go back and forth between the two of you. It's too hard on me. I'm going on home study. I'm going to be recording my first album for Interscope, who he's still with, interestingly enough, <laughs> and I want to get my own apartment. So at 17, we talked about it. He was so reasonable so responsible, he had everything, all his ducks in a row, he knew exactly how he was going to do it, how it was going to work, and 
sure enough, you know, he talked me into it. He always talked me into everything. And <laughs> he did. I know. He he was very good at that. Um, and he he and his very good friend Tabiso from Lesotho, South Africa, um, moved in together, not too far from my home, and I would go over and um they took very good care of everything, and the, the landlady said, I have never in my life met a 17-year-old like your son. He was so responsible. He went over every inch, every nick in the apartment. He didn't want to be responsible for anything that he hadn't caused. And so he went on home study for that year, and then after that, he just started making a living. And, wow. I mean, by the time he was 18, you know, he had his record deal, um, and then he had royalties coming in. He started writing. He started working with other people and producing records for other, for others. And by the time he was 21, he had his own recording studio, and he had a plan. He made a plan in his head that by the time he was 21, he had to have his own recording studio. And something very smart that he realized, that he saw that people could come up and have one hit and never be heard of again, mm-hmm if they didn't know what their music should be and how to produce their own music. And he knew that if he became a songwriter and a producer, record producer, he could work for the rest of his life. And so he set about to hone his skills in that area. It was very, very smart because now he's not only helped produce hits for other people um, and, and wonderful records for other people like Usher and Christina Aguilera and all kinds of people, 98 Degrees, Mark Anthony, etc., um, but now he's doing that same thing for himself. So he took the time. It, it, the best thing for him, I think, is that he had the time to to really develop a craft. And um, it's, it, I think it's going to serve him very well over the long run. Absolutely. You know, it's it's one of the, a, a really good, a really strong record producer is hard to find. And, and uh, uh, for that matter, a good songwriter is hard to find. So... You know, yeah. if you if you really kind of hone your craft, as you say, you can write your own ticket. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, he's he's doing very very well. That's good. And it's it it's it's something to really be proud of. I. I... Uh, well, I'm proud of him, and I th- I think he's <laughs> proud of himself. He's. I know Paul is very proud of him. Well, we all are. We're all you know. We're very excited for both of them, and my Absolutely. other son Brennan, who's. The one who has diabetes this year will be his 30th year with diabetes. He is still doing well, and he has a little little son named Tyler who is nine months old. So I get to be Nana Gloria. It's very sweet. <laughs> and he's a dear little boy. And, and Brennan's got a wonderful wife named Dolly who's just, just a, such a grounded, smart. I mean, both of my sons have the most wonderful wives. I'm so blessed. To, to have them as a part of my life. Wow. Well, you know, you mentioned diabetes, and you've done, a, you've done a pretty good measure of research and work on that disease, and it's probably, I would say it's probably the least understood disease in this country and, and probably the scariest. Uh, you know, my mm-hmm. sister's been a diabetic for 13 years, and my uncle was diagnosed 15 years ago, and, and it took the, the life of my aunt. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty closely affected by it, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things that hardly anybody really understands the cause, the effects, the the how you have to maintain yourself once you're diagnosed. Um, well, it depends. When, yes, I mean there are, there are a lot of demands, of course, and 
there are a number of, of unfortunate illnesses that require a, a lot of care. Diabetes probably requires more self-care than, than many of the others. Um, and more self-awareness, I would imagine. Yeah, well, education, absolutely. And it depends on whether you have type 1 or type 2 as to how closely you need to pay attention. But one of the reasons after writing three books for people with type with children and parents who have children with type 1 diabetes, which is the severest form of the disease that usually comes in your earlier years, and it, it once you get it, you are on insulin for the rest of your life. But the, the, the problem was that I was going out speaking to people with, with type 1 diabetes and, or, or at diabetes events, and people with type 2 would come up to me and say, you know, I really liked the way you explained that because I, I don't really understand what diabetes is. And I said, well, has your doctor given you some information? Well, not really. He just said, okay, just take your pills and watch your diet. And I said, well, what's your A1C? Now, the A1C is, is a, an absolutely essential test to do every 90 days because it tells you overall how you're doing. It's kind of like taking your blood pressure or your cholesterol. You know, you, you know that if your blood pressure is up, you're putting yourself in danger, and you know if your A1C, hemoglobin A1C it's called, yeah. if, you, if it's up, if the numbers are above a certain range, you're putting yourself in, in great danger over a long period of time especially. And almost all the people with type 2 diabetes I would meet had no idea what an A1C was. They were not testing their blood sugar every day. They were, well, I, you know, I just, I just take my pill and I go see my doctor every three, four months, and he said I'm doing fine. And I said, well, wait a minute, though. What if you're not doing good enough? Your doctor's not going to suffer the complications. You are. You are, yeah. It, it's your responsibility. You're the one who will go blind. You're the one who will lose your limbs. You're the one who will lose your kidneys you know, or have a stroke or a heart attack. Your doctor won't. And actually, there, there's a uh, doctor, oh, what's his name? I think it's Steve Edelman. And he start, uh, started a, um, a foundation, and he goes out and they do these one-day diabetes events. He's terrific. And he has diabetes. And he went to his doctor one day, and he purposely, he just, he didn't like the way his doctor always said, you're fine. He just, like, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. And this day he went and he ate six Krispy Kreme type donuts mm -hmm. before he went in to do his blood sugar test and his workup and all of that. And the doctor looked at everything and said, well, you're fine. Just keep doing what you're doing. And he said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And it was at that point that he said, I need to know more about my diabetes and I need to get another doctor. Um <laughs> And unfortunately, also, uh, uh, quite a number of people in this country who have diabetes, type 2 or even type 1, are not under the care of a real diabetes expert. And diabetes is a very specific, requires very specific, very individualized care. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, oh, take your pill and you'll be fine. There's a lot more to it than that. So it, it is an area of concern, and um, that's why I wrote my latest book that was published last year called um, Living with Type 2 Diabetes, Moving Past the Fear. Many times when people, what you said, you know, diabetes is not very well understood, and then if you have somebody in your family who went blind or lost their limbs or whatever, you, can, you might get it and go, I don't want to know any more about this disease. 
you know, I'll just do whatever I have to do, but I don't want to. I don't want to study it because it's too scary. Mm-hmm. Well, the the it used to be that it was so scary that it seemed as if no matter what you did, it didn't make that much of a difference. You would get the complications if you were going to get the complications. It was like a flip of a coin. But in truth, we know now that just like the human body, <laughs> as it is. The better care we take of the instrument, the better care it takes of us. Absolutely. And that is the same thing with diabetes. Um, We should have our blood sugars. uh, The normal range is 80 to 120 milligrams per liter of blood or something like that. And when that's what nature, the supreme intelligence that created this universe, whether you believe in it as a deity or just there is certainly intelligence in this universe, Mm-hmm. Um, it created us to operate within that range as far as the blood sugar. Well, if you go below or above, you get in trouble. So what do you want to do with diabetes? You want to get your blood sugar into that normal range for as much of your day as you possibly can, and you do it by balancing food, exercise, and insulin. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very complex. And yet the basic principles are pretty simple. Mm -hmm. If you get the right kind of education and if you have a support system around you, that helps a lot. You know, if you've got a grandma who's always making brownies for you and you're a 14-year-old, you know, who wants to be like everybody else and grandma's always slipping the brownies in front of the whole rest of the family, that's that's a real tough thing that you have to be the odd person out, you know, your odd man out. So... It's it's a tough disease. Um, are there tougher? Yeah, there probably are. But diabetes harm, harms and kills and hurts um, physically, emotionally, etc. An awful lot of people every year. So um, the more education we can get, the better, of course. And. When you figured out that your son was diabetic, what did you know about it? Did you have any kind of education? Did you have any kind of support system? Or were you completely flying by for a bit? I I had nothing. We literally were away on a vacation. We came back to uh, Los Angeles because we knew something was wrong, and it seemed to be diabetes, which I knew nothing about. I just knew it was scary. And I remember getting tears in my eyes and not being able to to say, <clears throat> to somebody, well, they think my son has I couldn't even say the word. And I, I had no experience with it whatsoever, but I knew it was something serious. Wow. <clears throat> and we took Brennan Wright to Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and we were there for six days, and got him all balanced, learned how to give the shot, went to diabetes education classes. It was uh, a very intense time, of course. You know, Not your bad. sadness, your grief, your... there's a tendency to want to feel guilty. Oh, I should have seen it sooner. Oh, maybe it's something I did. Maybe I should have been a better mother or fed him better foods. But with type 1 diabetes, we know that it is a genetic predisposition, which means it's passed along. There's a vulnerability that is passed along just from the family, combination of families, genes, whatever, and and yet some people can have the vulnerability, they can have twins, and they both have the marker for, for the genetic susceptibility, and one of them gets it and the other one doesn't. And they're researching that. You know, is there a protective mechanism in one of the twins that there isn't in the other 
that they can isolate so maybe they can prevent people who have this genetic marker from moving into diabetes. So, you know, research is very important. I've worked for 29 years now out of the 30 years that Brennan was diagnosed. Um, I've been involved with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, and they are my number one charity. Whenever they call, if I can, I go there and donate my services. And yeah. So it's, it's been uh, quite an extraordinary journey. You know, it's it's a pretty great thing to be able to hang your hat on, you know, saying that you, I mean, there's no telling how many people you've helped just with your own experience and sharing your own experience with the world. I mean, there's no telling how many people. Well, I think that's that's always the opportunity that we have. You know, um, we were talking the other night, we were at the Grammys with my son Robin and Paula, and some of his good buddies were there and his band was there, and um, we were just talking about a un- very, very unfortunate incident that arose, incident that rose with with um, one of the musicians, etc. Mm-hmm. And and I was saying, well, yeah, this this thing happened and it's terrible, but if this person gets help and cleans it up, he can become he can become a um, an example of how we can make mistakes and then we can make amends and straighten ourselves out. And my son's friend, Craigie, said, Craig, um, we call him Craigie, he's six foot five. Anyway, Craig said, yeah, if he starts preaching. And, you know, in other words, talking about the goodness that that can be found, because, you know, we all have tough stuff. Life is, is not fair. Life is not easy. Very, very hard things happen to people. But you look at how we can take something really challenging and really hard and we can turn it into a blessing for other people by being willing to tell the truth about our own story, um, become educated, maybe write some books that someone else who's kind of groping around in the dark reads the book and says, oh, that's just like me. Oh, look, now there's somebody, there's somebody who overcame that and... And and they did well, and so well, maybe I could, maybe I could be like that. And you know, because sometimes we look at people who've achieved a lot, and we think, oh, they've had it so easy. I mean, I've had people say that to me. Oh, you must have had it so easy. Well, not entirely. Um, <laughs> not not entirely. Uh-huh. I mean, I had certain gifts that were given to me. Um, I was of a race that was, you know, and uh, I had the uh, looks that are were prized. I mean, I'm a white girl with long blonde hair, you know. I mean, that's 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 great for you know if you're going to be on television at that time, especially earlier in in our evolution as a country. Um, you know, there are gifts I was given. I was given talent, etc. But I also came from a family where my father was an alcoholic. Um, there was a lot of dysfunction, a lot of, it, it was not a stable, secure, happy uh, environment all the time. Sometimes it was happy, but a lot of times it wasn't. Um, I was basically on my own from the time I was 17. Um, I had no family support. I had no money from my family. Um, I had to make my own way. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I was in relationships that were very hard. I suffered a lot. I blamed myself a lot. I had a very low opinion of myself, except when I was singing. When I was singing, I knew I was good. 
mm-hmm. but off stage, I didn't feel very good about myself. Um, so from my, my inner life earlier on feels very hard. Now maybe from the outside it looked like, oh, well, she's got it so easy. Look at, you know, she's, yeah. she's a young, pretty girl, and she's got a good voice, and look at her, she's doing so well. But I wasn't happy. I wasn't having a good inner life. And, you know, just because somebody's got, you know, $50 million in the bank doesn't mean they're having a good life. Absolutely. We were talking, uh, they were talking on television, and I've been reading a little bit, that people nowadays, actually, if the, the studies or statistics or whatever, people now are less satisfied with their life, with all the iPods and, you know, HDTV and, you know, seven foot wide screens and you know all the things all the stuff we have people are actually less satisfied with their life now and and it you know it yeah we can get misled in thinking that the outer elements of the life are the source of satisfaction but they're really not you know they're they're a source of fulfillment of desires and that's great listen it's great I love buying a beautiful car or having nice clothes, and, and and would I miss them if I didn't have them? Yeah, sure. But it, I've gotten to a point now where I realize that that's not the source of my happiness. Absolutely. The source of my happiness is within me, and it's my my opportunity every day to take whatever I'm being given and go, ah, so, and now Absolutely. it's this. And now I have a flat tire. Oh, and here comes, isn't this great? I have a flat tire, and here comes a wonderful person to help me. I'm so grateful for that. Or I'm stuck in traffic, and, oh, I have some great CDs to listen to. Or, you know what, I'm going to catch up on a conversation with my friend in in Tennessee. Uh Or, you know, there's, there's always something to be grateful for and something to be happy about. Even, Even when my mother was dying, we had laughs, we had camaraderie. I mean, I have some of the dearest memories of family, familial closeness and bonding when we came to, because we'd been kind of scattered for so many years, when we came together to help my mother through the final years of her life. It was, you know, so there's always an opportunity for happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the the, the biggest thing I've learned along the way, and it's 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 a great lesson. The sooner we learn it, that our our inner happiness does not have to depend on outer circumstances. That's a big one. Absolutely. Plus, you know, I think I think you're. So, I mean, I'm a writer, so I can kind of speak toward it also. But I think you're so lucky in that you have a creative outlet that you can plug all the bad stuff into. And channel it through, and and you know deal with it. I, I think. Do you ever find, do you ever think? Damn, I'm so lucky that I have this kind of outlet to kind of get all the bad stuff through me and out of me. It's funny. I don't think of it. Uh, it's an interesting thing you just said to get all the bad stuff out of me, because I don't think about bad stuff. Um, the. What I do with my music is I try to channel the good stuff. <laughs> now, now, but as a writer, have I, you know, as someone who has learned to be expressive, there are many times along the way when something's been very hard and I get stuck 
and I find that turning to journaling, just writing like crazy, mm-hmm. just, you know, don't even mm-hmm. lift the pencil from the paper and write mm-hmm. for 20, 30, 40 minutes, just mm-hmm. get it all out. And then sometimes I'll look at what I wrote the next day and I'll say, what was I thinking? <laughs> that is the biggest pile of doo-doo. Oh, my. And I'll tear it up and say, get rid of that stuff, you know. Because, you know, stuff, you just, we just get on these little tears. And we go, well, how she you know, and we just spout and fume and smoke comes out our ears. And then, you know, three days later, you're thinking, what was I so mad about? I remember I was mad at her, but I don't remember why, you know. <laughs> so I found, I found not through my singing, but okay. through the, the creativity of writing, um, that, that that can be a very, very good outlet. Um Self-reflection is a very good outlet. You know, what, what, what am I doing here? What am I so mad at this person about? Um, you know, there's a whole big subject with Eckhart Tolle and Byron Katie and, and some of these um, very special spiritual leaders and, and philosophical, philosophically spiritual leaders who are giving us very high-level teachings that have come down through the ages, and they're giving us a modern take on it. And basically, it, it's, you know, when we see a fault in someone else, it mer- and if it rubs us the wrong way, it's very often something about ourselves we need to look at. Uh, the short form of what I just said is, if you spot it, you got it. <laughs> well, she just tells, she gossips, and can you believe how she gossips? Well, hello, I'm gossiping now, you know? <laughs> So I mean I I I'm learning more and more to try to watch for that in myself, <laughs> and it's most often it's called projection. Psychological term. It's called projection. We project onto others those okay. issues we have not processed, integrated, fulfilled, completed in ourselves. Those things that are still a sticky point. And, um, yeah, that's that's a real interesting thing to do also to keep watching. So, so, so I bring my goodness to the music, um, but, I, but I bring the depth of feeling. And, and sometimes there are difficult feelings, but it sure. doesn't mean it's the bad stuff. Maybe that's what you meant by bad stuff. I've gone off on quite a philosophical tear here. but I don't know. Uh, Maybe bad stuff isn't the right word, but, you know, you were talking about... You were talking about painful relationships, and you were talking about anger, and you were talking about sadness. And, you know, I think it's always good to have some kind of creative outlet to plug all that stuff into. Well, when when we sing, we, we, uh, those of us who do this professionally and, and, you know, get to be in front of audiences, our purpose there is to help people find an expression for maybe that which they haven't yet been able to unleash yet. Um, we also entertain them, but sometimes a song about longing or loss um, helps them cry a little bit and, and mm-hmm. or, or remember fondly. There's a song I do called Once Upon a Time that I used to do it in Days of Our Lives, and it's on one of my albums. And a few times I've had um, women especially come up to me and say, you know, I lost my husband or I was divorced or whatever, and I didn't realize that there were still tears in there, but you brought them to my eyes in a good way. 
I, I remember fondly what I did have, and I'm grateful for what I had. And, you know, so to take the depth of our own experience, whether we thought it was good or bad at the time, and maybe that's a better use of that concept for me. Yeah. Um, it may have felt, this is bad. I just <laughs> broke, he just broke up with me, and this is bad. But, you know, <laughs> then I look, I look back at the people either I broke up with or broke up with me, and I'm saying, oh, my God, I'm so glad they're out of my life. <laughs> I, they would not have been right for me. I would not have been right for them. But you at know, the time, so it's like, the end of the world. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm all alone. Oh, you know, I was like, oh, <laughs> be quiet. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> well, you know, anyway, talk so about... Let, let, let's take just a moment, because I'm going to go in a couple minutes, but I just want to let um, folks that are listening, and I know they can download this later, March 22nd, you did mention this at the beginning of our time together. Yes. Uh, I have a new show called TV Tunes Tonight, and it is a celebration of television theme music, whether they were songs that became really popular because of exposure on a television show, um, like Friends and Lovers, that, that I introduced on Days of Our Lives and then became a top ten hit, because, or actually number one and number two on two different charts, uh, because of the exposure, or, or whether it's theme songs like Facts of Life or Different Strokes that I had a hand in, and... It just, it suddenly came to us recently. We kept getting these Google alerts for YouTube and Gloria Loring's Facts of Life, and people were lip-syncing to my voice or singing that song um, with the most bizarre and fantabulous um, versions you've ever heard in your life and probably don't ever need to hear again. And, um, (laughs) I mean, it was so much fun. And my, my, my creative partner and manager, Sherry, one day said, that's it. That's what we need to do. Because we were trying to, like, we want to create a new show and a fun vehicle, something people will really enjoy. And she said, my God, she said, you've been a television artist all these years. You're probably the only person to ever had a hit out of daytime and have one of the, the most popular nighttime theme songs that you've sung all these years and mm-hmm. had a hand in writing. And she said, that's what we need to do. And I looked at her and I went, oh, my gosh, that's a fabulous <laughs> idea. Because these, these songs are such fun. So anyway, March 22nd, which is a Sunday at 7.30, in Los Angeles at the Music Box Theater, we're going to get this show up on its feet. And um, we're talking to some folks in Vegas about maybe taking it there. And, you know, so I think there will be lots of good opportunities to, uh, to do the show again. But if anybody's listening from the Southern California area, come on out. You will have a great night. We're just having the best time putting this show together, and we've been rehearsing already for a month, and it's, it's going to be a blast. Excellent. Yeah. You know, I would imagine it's one, of those, it's one of those shows where the audience can be very interactive because everybody knows all these songs. I mean, it's... Oh, yes, we're, we're absolutely, and we're actually going to have what we call the Dumb to Dumb Dumb contest, and it's all <laughs> these theme songs that don't have lyrics, and we're going to just sing them with... Dum dee dum dee dum dee dum dee dum lyrics, and then we're going to choose two people out of the audience to see if they can figure out all the themes that we're singing in that medley, and then we'll have a prize for them. So it's it's interactive. It's come on, sing along, have a good time. It's going to be dramatic. It's going to be exciting. We're doing um, the, um, the several of the great Olympic theme songs, like Reach and Power of the Dream and. 
It's wow. just, it's going to be a blast, and, and a lot of really good music. And I have a wonderful co-singer that I invited to be a part of the show named Amick Byram, who is twice nominated for Grammy for Excellent. his um, voiceover work in The Prince of Egypt, and I've forgotten the other one now. And he's a, a wonderful singer. So uh, it's going to be a great show. So we invite everybody to come out. And just check, they can go to Ticketmaster.com. And just type in Gloria Loring, and you'll see March 22nd, the Music Box Theater in Los Angeles. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like a great show, and if I if if I were in Southern California, I would go there in a heartbeat. But I'm in Texas. So. I know, I know. <laughs> well, maybe you can find an excuse. Anyway, all right. Do you have one last question? So I probably need to get going. Uh, you know what? I I do. I wanted to I wanted to ask you about Friends and Lovers a little bit because you know that's that's still one of my favorite songs. 25 years later. And, uh, you know, if, if my understanding is correct, uh, that was recorded in it, and it was put on the shelf for a long, long time before it was ever released officially. Um, and I was just wondering what the issue was kind of blocking its relief. Well, um, I don't actually know. There was a small record company. It was turned down by every major label. It Isn't generated, and at that time we had a memo from NBC Television. They were so excited from the, the publicity department saying that that song and my singing of it had generated more fan mail than any piece of music in the history of NBC television, daytime television. And so it was put with a small record company that was um, a subsidiary of, of Epic Sony, and um, it just, I don't know, it just took the months and months and months and months. And during that time I thought, oh, my dream of a hit record is gone because, they're not releasing the record, and but every once in a while, every three weeks or so, we'd I'd sing that song. And of course, I had gotten together with Carl Anderson, and they had Carl on the show. And then, um, gra- very gradually, uh, we just kept doing the song a little here and there, and the, the audience, the response kept building and building and building and building. And finally, it was almost a year later from the time that I had. Um, found the song. I found the song in 80, 85, and it wasn't released until June of 86, and it just, in six weeks, just, or eight weeks, shot up the charts into the top ten, wow. and the week, here's here's the fun story, we'll end on this note. The week I left Days of Our Lives, my first book on diabetes was published, my divorce became final, Friends and Lovers hit number one on the record charts, and I said goodbye to days after seven years on Days of Our Lives. Wow. So talk about a, you know, a, a period of time where there's a confluence of, of events coming together, weaving together. I had these, these things that I was letting go, my marriage, my, my, my Days of Our Lives family, and yet I hear was this book and this record and all this great stuff that was still to come. So it was quite, quite an interesting week. <laughs> Absolutely. What a perfect way to end the show. I tell you what, it's it's you are so fantastic, and you know I certainly hope that this is not our first and last conversation because I have so many more questions for you, and I just barely scratched the surface with you. You're such an interesting lady. Oh, thank you very much, and I enjoyed talking with you, and good luck with your show. Same here. Before I let you go, could I get you to do a quick promo for my show? Sure. You can say anything you like as long as it includes the words Gloria Loring and Brandon's Buzz. Oh, okay. And I'm recording now, so anytime you're ready, shoot. 
Okay. Well, this is Gloria Loring, and I've just been buzzed by Brandon, and I gave Brandon some buzz. So you should log on sometime and listen. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. It was such an honor speaking with you. Like I said, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and this was a great thrill. All right. Thank you so much. And Thank good luck you with so, all, so all much. you're doing. Thank all you right. very Take much. Take care. Bye. Gloria Loring, everybody. And that's it. Brandon's Buzz comes to an end February 18th, 2009. Tomorrow night, I've got legendary soul singer Peggy Scott Adams. She was a, a huge hit in the 60s with JoJo Benson, with Benny King. She was a hit in the 70s. She laid low throughout the 80s, and she made a huge comeback in the 90s uh, with a great song called Bill, which was nominated for a Grammy and put her back on the map. She's a gospel singer now, and uh, she's going to talk about her latest career ventures where she's going to talk about Bill. She's going to talk about her entire career. It's going to be great fun. That's tomorrow night, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz, 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific. Next week, I've got Beth Maitland from Young and the Restless. Uh, that's Tuesday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, uh, and that's going to be great fun. I'm trying to get Nia Peoples next week, so uh, stay tuned for that. And then the first week of March, I've got Royal Andrews from General Hospital, and I've got a great lady named Claire Massey. She was the lead singer of a 90s band called Tammy Show that I loved, and we're going to talk all about Tammy Show and all about her hits and all about what she's up to now, so... It's a full slate coming up. You can check out my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There is complete information on who's coming on the show and who's been on the show. There's a complete radio archive in the radio tab. Uh, you can listen to old shows. You can see old banners that my great friend Joanne made. Uh, that's on my blog. You can also go to Brandon's Buzz. You can also go to blogtalkradio.com/brandonsbuzz, which is the show's website, and you can look at all the old shows. You can listen to and download all the old shows. And you can also download all the old shows from iTunes. Uh, type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes search box. My podcasts pop up, and you can subscribe to them, or you can download individual episodes. So there's no excuse not to hear me. I'm all over the Internet. So uh, come on by. Drop me a line. You can email me from the blog. You can email me from the website. You can also leave comments, and you can rate the show at iTunes. Uh, and I, I, I encourage you to do so because the, the people at Blog Talk Radio really look at all of that stuff. They look at all the, all the stats. They look at all the downloads. They look at all the comments. So uh, if you like the show, please drop me a line and tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. Tell me what you'd like to see. Tell me what I could do better. Tell me anything that you're thinking about the show. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's great fun being able to do this for you guys, and it's great fun hearing from you guys about what you like. So um, that's it, Brandon's Buzz in the can, Wednesday, February 18th, uh, coming to an end with a great guest named Gloria Loring. I had such a huge, uh, it was such a huge thrill talking to her, and I had huge fun, uh, great fun talking to her, and she's a very great lady, and we're going to have her back sometime because she was fantastic. So tomorrow night, Peggy Scott Adams, uh, 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific, February 19th, and next Tuesday afternoon with Beth Maitland. So come on back to Brandon's Buzz. <laughs>